Chapter Sixteen, Ivanhoe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kristen Lemoyne, GreenKRI.com. Ivanhoe by Sir Walter Scott, Chapter Sixteen. Far in a wild unknown to public view, From youth to age a reverend hermit grew. The moss his bed, the cave his humble cell, His food the fruits, his drink the crystal well. Remote from man with God he passed his days, Prayer all his business, all his pleasure praise. The reader cannot have forgotten that the event of the tournament was decided by the exertions of an unknown knight, whom on account of the passive and indifferent conduct which he had manifested on the former part of the day, the spectators had entitled Le Noir Fernand. This knight had left the field abruptly when the victory was achieved, and when he was called upon to receive the reward of his valour he was nowhere to be found. In the meantime, while summoned by heralds and by trumpets, the knight was holding his course northward, avoiding all frequented paths, and taking the shortest road through the woodlands. He paused for the night at a small hostelry, lying out of the ordinary route, where, however, he obtained from a wandering minstrel news of the event of the tourney. On the next morning the knight departed early, with the intention of making a long journey. The condition of his horse, which he had carefully spared during the preceding morning, being such as enabled him to travel far without the necessity of much repose. Yet his purpose was baffled by the devious paths through which he rode, so that when evening closed upon him he only found himself on the frontiers of the west riding of Yorkshire. By this time both horse and man required refreshment, and it became necessary, moreover, to look out for some place in which they might spend the night, which was now fast approaching. The place where the traveller found himself seemed unpropitious for obtaining either shelter or refreshment, and he was likely to be reduced to the usual expedient of knights errant, who on such occasions turned their horses to graze and laid themselves down to meditate on their lady mistress, with an oak tree for a canopy but the black knight either had no mistress to meditate upon, or, being as indifferent in love as he seemed to be in war, was not sufficiently occupied by passionate reflections upon her beauty and cruelty to be able to parry the effects of fatigue and hunger, and suffer love to act as a substitute for the solid comforts of a bed and supper. He felt dissatisfied, therefore, when looking around he found himself deeply involved in woods, through which indeed there were many open glades, and some paths, but such as seemed only formed by the numerous herds of cattle which grazed in the forest, or by the animals of chase, and the hunters who made prey of them. The sun, by which the knight had chiefly directed his course, had now sunk behind the Derbyshire hills on his left, and every effort which he might make to pursue his journey was as likely to lead him out of his road as to advance him on his route. After having in vain endeavoured to select the most beaten path, 
in hopes it might lead to the cottage of some herdsman or the sylvan lodge of a forester, and having repeatedly found himself totally unable to determine on a choice, the knight resolved to trust to the sagacity of his horse, experience having on former occasions made him acquainted with the wonderful talent possessed by these animals for extricating themselves and their riders on such emergencies. The good steed, grievously fatigued with so long a day's journey under a rider cased in mail, had no sooner found by the slackened reins that he was abandoned to his own guidance than he seemed to assume new strength and spirit, and whereas formerly he had scarce replied to the spur otherwise than by a groan, he now, as if proud of the confidence reposed in him, pricked up his ears, and assumed of his own accord a more lively motion. The path which the animal adopted rather turned off from the course pursued by the knight during the day, but as the horse seemed confident in his choice, the rider abandoned himself to his discretion. He was justified by the event, for the footpath soon after appeared a little wider and more worn, and the tinkle of a small bell gave the knight to understand that he was in the vicinity of some chapel or hermitage. Accordingly, he soon reached an open plat of turf, on the opposite side of which a rock, rising abruptly from a gently sloping plain, offered its grey and weather-beaten front to the traveller. Ivy mantled its sides in some places, and in others oaks and holly-bushes, whose roots found nourishment in the cliffs of the crag, waved over the precipices below like the plumage of the warrior over his steel helmet, giving grace to that whose chief expression was terror. At the bottom of the rock, and leaning, as it were, against it, was constructed a rude hut, built chiefly of the trunks of trees felled in the neighboring forest, and secured against the weather by having its crevices stuffed with moss mingled with clay. The stem of a young fir-tree lopped off its branches, with a piece of wood tied across near the top, was planted upright by the door as a rude emblem of the holy cross. At a little distance on the right hand, a fountain of the purest water trickled out of the rock, and was received in a hollow stone, which labor had formed into a rustic basin. Escaping from thence, the stream murmured down the descent by a channel which his course had long worn, and so wandered through the little plain to lose itself in the neighboring wood. Beside this fountain were the ruins of a very small chapel, of which the roof had partly fallen in. The building, when entire, had never been above sixteen feet long by twelve feet in breadth, and the roof, low in proportion, rested upon four concentric arches, which sprung from the four corners of the building, each supported upon a short and heavy pillar. The ribs of two of these arches remained, though the roof had fallen down betwixt them. Over the others it remained entire. The entrance to this ancient place of devotion was under a very low, round arch, ornamented by several courses of that zigzag moulding, resembling shark's teeth, which appears so often in the more ancient Saxon architecture. A belfry rose above the porch on four small pillars, within which hung the green and weather-beaten bell, the feeble sounds of which had been some time before heard by the black knight. The whole peaceful and quiet scene lay glimmering in twilight before the eyes of the traveller, giving him good assurance of lodging for the night. 
since it was a special duty of those hermits who dwelt in the woods to exercise hospitality towards benighted or bewildered passengers. Accordingly, the knight took no time to consider minutely the particulars which we have detailed, but, thanking St. Julian, the patron of travellers, who had sent him good harbourage, he leaped from his horse, and assailed the door of the hermitage with the butt of his lance, in order to arouse attention and gain admittance. It was some time before he obtained any answer, and the reply, when made, was unpropitious. "'Pass on, whosoever thou art,' was the answer given by a deep hoarse voice from within the hut, "'and disturb not the servant of God and St. Dunstan in his evening devotions.' "'Worthy father,' answered the knight, "'here is a poor wanderer bewildered in these woods, "'who gives thee the opportunity of exercising thy charity and hospitality.' "'Good brother,' replied the inhabitant of the hermitage, it has pleased Our Lady and St. Dunstan to destine me for the object of those virtues, instead of the exercise thereof. I have no provisions here which even a dog would share with me, and a horse of any tenderness of nurture would despise my couch. Pass therefore on thy way, and God speed thee. But how, replied the knight, is it possible for me to find my way through such a wood as this, when darkness is coming on? I pray you, reverend father, as you are a Christian, to undo your door, and at least point out to me thy road. And I pray you, good Christian brother, replied the anchorite, to disturb me no more. You have already interrupted one pater, two aves, and a credo, which I, miserable sinner that I am, should, according to my vow, have said before moonrise. The road, the road, vociferated the knight. Give me directions for the road, if I am to expect no more from thee. The road, replied the hermit, is easy to hit. The path from the wood leads to a morass, and from thence to a ford, which, as the rains have abated, may now be passable. When thou hast crossed the ford, thou wilt take care of thy footing up the left bank, as it is somewhat precipitous, and the path which hangs over the river has lately as I learn, for I seldom leave the duties of my chapel, given way in sundry places. Thou wilt then keep straight forward a broken path, a precipice, a ford, and a morass, said the knight, interrupting him. Sir Hermit, if you were the holiest that ever wore beard or told bead, you shall scarce prevail on me to hold this road to-night. I tell thee that thou, who livest by the charity of the country, ill-deserved as I doubt it is, hast no right to refuse shelter to the wayfarer when in distress. Either open the door quickly, or by the rod I will beat it down and make entry for myself. Friend wayfarer, replied the hermit, be not importunate. If thou puttest me to use the carnal weapon in mine own defence, it will be e'en the worse for you. At this moment a distant noise of barking and growling, which the traveller had for some time heard, became extremely loud and furious, and made the knight suppose that the hermit, alarmed by his threat of making forcible entry, had called the dogs, who made this clamour to aid him in his defence, out of some inner recess in which they had been kennelled. Incensed at this preparation on the hermit's part for making good his inhospitable purpose, the knight struck the door so furiously with his foot that posts as well as staples shook with violence. 
the anchorite, not caring again to expose his door to a similar shock, now called out aloud, "'Patience! Patience! Spare thy strength, good traveller, and I will presently undo the door, though it may be my doing so will be little to thy pleasure.' The door accordingly was opened, and the hermit, a large, strong-built man, in his sackcloth gown and hood, girt with a rope of rushes, stood before the knight. He had in one hand a lighted torch, or link, and in the other a baton of crab-tree, so thick and heavy that it might well be termed a club. Two large shaggy dogs, half greyhound, half mastiff, stood ready to rush upon the traveller as soon as the door should be opened. But when the torch glanced upon the lofty crest and golden spurs of the knight who stood without, the hermit, altering probably his original intentions, repressed the rage of his auxiliaries, and changing his tone to a sort of churlish courtesy, invited the knight to enter his hut, making excuse for his unwillingness to open his lodge after sunset, by alleging the multitude of robbers and outlaws who were abroad, and who gave no honour to Our Lady or St. Dunstan, nor to those holy men who spent life in their service. "'The poverty of your cell, good father,' said the knight, looking around him, and seeing nothing but a bed of leaves, a crucifix rudely carved in oak, a missal with a rough-hewn table and two stools, and one or two clumsy articles of furniture. The poverty of your cell should seem a sufficient defence against any risk of thieves, not to mention the aid of two trusty dogs, large and strong enough, I think, to pull down a stag, and of course to match with most men. The good keeper of the forest, said the hermit, hath allowed me the use of these animals to protect my solitude until the times shall mend. Having said this, he fixed his torch in a twisted branch of iron which served for a candlestick, and placing the oaken trivet before the embers of the fire, which he refreshed with some dry wood, he placed a stool upon one side of the table, and beckoned to the knight to do the same upon the other. They sat down and gazed with great gravity at each other each thinking in his heart that he had seldom seen a stronger or more athletic figure than was placed opposite to him. "'Reverend Hermit,' said the knight, after looking long and fixedly at his host, "'were it not to interrupt your devout meditations, I would pray to know three things of your holiness. First, where am I to put my horse? Secondly, what can I have for supper? Thirdly, where am I to take up my couch for the night?' "'I will reply to you,' said the hermit, "'with my finger, it being against my rule to speak by words where signs can answer the purpose.' So saying, he pointed successively to two corners of the hut. "'Your stable,' said he, "'is there, your bed there,' and, reaching down a platter with two handfuls of parched peas upon it from the neighbouring shelf, and placing it upon the table, he added, "'Your supper is here.' The knight shrugged his shoulders, and, leaving the hut, brought in his horse, which, in the interim, he had fastened to a tree, unsaddled him with much attention, and spread upon the steed's weary back his own mantle. The hermit was apparently somewhat moved to compassion by the anxiety as well as address which the stranger displayed in tending his horse, for, muttering something about provender left for the keeper's palfrey, he dragged out of a recess a bundle of forage which he spread before the knight's charger, 
and immediately afterwards shook down a quantity of dried fern in the corner which he had assigned for the rider's couch. The knight returned him thanks for his courtesy, and this duty done, both resumed their seats by the table, whereon stood the trencher of peas placed between them. The hermit, after a long grace, which had once been Latin, but of which original language few traces remained, excepting here and there the long rolling termination of some word or phrase, set example to his guest by modestly putting into a very large mouth, furnished with teeth which might have ranked with those of a boar, both in sharpness and whiteness, some three or four dried peas, a miserable grist, as it seemed, for so large and able a mill. The knight, in order to follow so laudable an example, laid aside his helmet, his corslet, and the greater part of his armour, and showed to the hermit a head, thick curled with yellow hair, high features, blue eyes, remarkably bright and sparkling, a mouth well formed, having an upper lip clothed with moustachios darker than his hair, and bearing altogether the look of a bold, daring, and enterprising man, with which his strong form well corresponded. The hermit, as if wishing to answer to the confidence of his guest, threw back his cowl and showed a round bullet head, belonging to a man in the prime of life. His close-shaven crown, surrounded by a circle of stiff, curled black hair, had something the appearance of a parish pinfold begirt by its high hedge. The features expressed nothing of monastic austerity, or of ascetic privations. On the contrary, it was a bold, bluff countenance, with broad black eyebrows, a well-turned forehead, and cheeks as round and vermilion as those of a trumpeter from which descended a long and curly black beard. Such a visage, joined to the brawny form of the holy man, spoke rather of sirloins and haunches than of peas and pulse. This incongruity did not escape the guest. After he had with great difficulty accomplished the mastication of a mouthful of the dried peas, he found it absolutely necessary to request his pious entertainer to furnish him with some liquor who replied to his request by placing before him a large can of the purest water from the fountain. "'It is from the well of St. Dunstan,' said he, in which betwixt sun and sun he baptized five hundred heathen Danes and Britons, blessed be his name. And applying his black beard to the pitcher, he took a draught much more moderate in quantity than his economium seemed to warrant." "'It seems to me, reverend father,' said the knight, "'that the small morsels which you eat, "'together with this holy but somewhat thin beverage, "'have thriven with you marvellously. "'You appear a man more fit to win the ram at a wrestling-match, "'or the ring at a bout at quarter-staff, "'or the bucklers at a sword-play, "'than to linger out your time in this desolate wilderness, "'saying masses and living upon parched peas and cold water.' "'Sir Knight,' answered the hermit. Your thoughts, like those of the ignorant laity, are according to the flesh. It has pleased our lady and my patron saint to bless the pittance to which I restrain myself, even as the pulse and water was blessed to the children Shadrach, Mesech, and Abednego, who drank the same, rather than defile themselves with the wine and meats which were appointed them by the king of the Saracens. Holy Father, said the knight, upon whose countenance it hath pleased heaven to work such a miracle. Permit a sinful layman to crave thy name? 
"'Thou mayst call me,' answered the hermit, "'the clerk of Kopmanhurst, for so I am termed in these parts. They add, it is true, the epithet holy, but I stand not upon that, as being unworthy of such addition. And now, valiant knight, may I pray ye for the name of my honourable guest?' "'Truly,' said the knight, "'Holy Clerk of Kopmanhurst, men call me in these parts the Black Knight. Many, sir, add to it the epithet of sluggard, whereby I am no way ambitious to be distinguished.' The hermit could scarcely forbear from smiling at his guest's reply. "'I see,' said he, "'Sir Sluggish Knight, that thou art a man of prudence and of counsel. And, moreover, I see that my poor monastic fare likes thee not.' accustomed, perhaps, as thou hast been to the license of courts and of camps, and the luxuries of cities. And now I bethink me, Sir Sluggard, that when the charitable keeper of this forest walk left these dogs for my protection, and also those bundles of forage, he left me also some food which, being unfit for my use, the very recollection of it has escaped me amid my more weighty meditations." "'Dare I be sworn he did so,' said the knight. "'I was convinced that there was better food in the cell, holy clerk, "'since you first doffed your cowl. "'Your keeper is ever a jovial fellow, "'and none who beheld thy grinders contending with these peas, "'and thy throat flooded with this ungenial element, "'could see thee doomed to such horse provender and horse beverage,' "'pointing to the provisions upon the table, "'and refrain from mending thy cheer.' Let us the keeper's bounty, therefore, without delay. The hermit cast a wistful look upon the knight, in which there was a sort of comic expression of hesitation, as if uncertain how far he should act prudently in trusting his guest. There was, however, as much of bold frankness in the knight's countenance as was possible to be expressed by features. His smile, too, had something in it irresistibly comic, and gave an assurance of faith and loyalty, with which his host could not refrain from sympathizing. After exchanging a mute glance or two, the hermit went to the further side of the hut, and opened a hutch which was concealed with great care and some ingenuity, out of the recesses of a dark closet, into which this aperture gave admittance, he brought a large pasty, baked in a pewter platter of unusual dimensions. This mighty dish he placed before his guest, who, using his poniard to cut it open, lost no time in making himself acquainted with its contents. "'How long is it since the good keeper has been here?' said the knight to his host, after having swallowed several hasty morsels of this reinforcement to the hermit's good cheer. "'About two months,' answered the father hastily. "'By the true lord,' answered the knight, Everything in your hermitage is miraculous, holy clerk, for I would have been sworn that the fat buck which furnishes this venison had been running on foot within the week. The hermit was somewhat discountenanced by this observation, and, moreover, he made but a poor figure while gazing on the diminution of the pastry, on which his guest was making desperate inroads. A warfare in which his previous profession of abstinence left him no pretext for joining. "'I have been in Palestine, Sir Clerk,' said the knight, stopping short of a sudden. "'And I bethink me it is a custom there that every host who entertains a guest "'shall assure him of the wholesomeness of his food by partaking of it along with him. 
far be it from me to suspect so holy a man of aught inhospitable. Nevertheless, I will be highly bound to you would you comply with this eastern custom. To ease your unnecessary scruples, sir knight, I will for once depart from my rule, replied the hermit, and as there were no forks in those days, his clutches were instantly in the bowels of the pasty. The ice of the ceremony being once broken, it seemed a matter of rivalry between the guest and the entertainer which should display the best appetite, and although the former had probably fasted longest, yet the hermit fairly surpassed him. "'Holy clerk,' said the knight, when his hunger was appeased, "'I would gauge my good horse yonder against a zecken, "'that the same honest keeper to whom we are obliged for the venison "'has left thee a stoop of wine, or a runlet of canary, "'or some such trifle by way of ally to this noble pasty. "'This would be a circumstance, doubtless, "'totally unworthy to dwell in the memory of so rigid an anchorite. "'Yet, I think, were you to search yonder crypt once more, "'you would find that I am right in my conjecture.' The hermit only replied by a grin, and returning to the hutch, he produced a leathern bottle, which might contain about four quarts. He also brought forth two large drinking cups, made out of the horn of the urus, and hooped with silver. Having made this goodly provision for washing down the supper, he seemed to think no farther ceremonious scruple necessary on his part, but filling both cups, and saying, in the Saxon fashion, Beas hail, Sir Sluggish Knight. He emptied his own at a draught. Drink hail, Holy Clerk of Copmanhurst, answered the warrior, and did his host reason in a similar brimmer. Holy Clerk, said the stranger, after the first cup was thus swallowed, I cannot but marvel that a man possessed of such thews and sinews as thine, and who therewithal shows the talent of so goodly a trencherman, should think of abiding by himself in this wilderness. In my judgment you are fitter to keep a castle or a fort, eating of the fat and drinking of the strong, than to live here upon pulse and water, or even upon the charity of the keeper. At least, were I as thou, I should find myself both disport and plenty out of the king's deer. There is many a goodly herd in these forests, and a buck will never be missed that goes to the use of St. Dunstan's chaplain. "'Sir Sluggish Knight,' replied the clerk, "'these are dangerous words, and I pray you to forbear them. I am true hermit to the king and law, and were I to spoil my liege's game, I should be sure of the prison, and my gown saved me not, were in some peril of hanging.' "'Nevertheless, were I as thou, said the knight, I would take my walk by moonlight, when foresters and keepers were warm in bed, and ever and anon, as I pattered my prayers, I would let fly a shaft among the herds of dun-deer that feed in the glades. Resolve me, holy clerk, hast thou never practised such a pastime? Friend sluggard, answered the hermit, Thou hast seen all that concern thee of my housekeeping, and something more than he deserves who takes up his quarters by violence. Credit me, it is better to enjoy the good which God sends thee, than to be impertinently curious how it comes. Fill thy cup and welcome, and do not, I pray thee, by further impertinent inquiries, 
put me to show that thou couldst hardly have made good thy lodging, had I been earnest to oppose thee. By my faith, said the knight, thou makest me more curious than ever. Thou art the most mysterious hermit I ever met, and I will know more of thee ere we part. As for thy threats, no, holy man, thou speakest to one whose trade it is to find out danger wherever it is to be met with. Sir sluggish knight, I drink to thee, said the hermit, respecting thy valour much, but deeming wondrous slightly of thy discretion. If thou wilt take equal arms with me, I will give thee, in all friendship and brotherly love, such sufficing penance and complete absolution that thou shalt not for the next twelve months sin the sin of excess of curiosity. The knight pledged him, and desired him to name his weapons. There is none, replied the hermit, from the scissors of Delilah and the tenpenny nail of jail to the scimitar of Goliath, at which I am not a match for thee. But if I am to make the election, what sayest thou, good friend, to these trinkets? Thus speaking, he opened another hutch, and took out from it a couple of broadsword and bucklers, such as were used by the yeomanry of the period. The knight, who watched his motions, observed that this second place of concealment was furnished with two or three good long-bows, a cross-bow, a bundle of bolts for the latter, and half a dozen sheaves of arrows for the former. A harp, and other matters of very uncanonical appearance, were also visible when this dark recess was opened. "'I promise thee, brother clerk,' said he, "'I will ask thee no more offensive questions. The contents of that cupboard are an answer to all my inquiries, and I see a weapon there.' Here he stopped and took out the harp, on which I would more gladly prove my skill with thee than at the sword and buckler. "'I hope, sir knight,' said the hermit, Thou hast given no good reason for thy surname of the sluggard. I do promise thee I suspect thee grievously. Nevertheless, thou art my guest, and I will not put thy manhood to the proof without thine own free will. Sit thee down, then, and fill thy cup. Let us drink, sing, and be merry. If thou knowest ever a good lay, thou shalt be welcome to a nook of pasty at Copmanhurst, so long as I deserve the chapel of St. Dunstan which, please God, shall be till I change my grey covering for one of green turf. But come, fill a flagon, for it will crave some time to tune the harp, and not pitches the voice and sharpens the ear like a cup of wine. For my part, I love to feel the grape at my very finger-ends before they make the harp-strings tingle. End of chapter 16